Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland. Welcome to another episode of Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the big question of business today, how do we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're trying to accept the implementation of the challenges of the three Ds, digitalization to keep up with our peers and our industry, decarbonisation to hit our targets of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and the ongoing disruptions of things like pandemics and global inflation and supply chain interruptions and product changes, all sorts of disruptions. So we've got to handle these digitalizations, decarbonizations and distortion and disruptions. Let's find out how we do that. In this podcast, we delve into all sections of the end-to-end supply chain and look at the issues from different angles. I have great conversations with fascinating people and we also have some fun along the way. And speaking of fun and fascinating, my guest today is the irrepressible Sarah Pavillard. Hello, Sarah. Hi, James. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. It's been a big week in uh, supply chain circles, I think. And we have been planning this for so long, and it's just happened to come together at the right time. Somehow the supply chain gods came together and it all fell into place. One might call it serendipitous. I love serendipity. Let me introduce you to the listeners. Sarah is a leading expert and commentator in the defence industry supply chain in Australia. Her business is a direct supplier to both defence itself and also to the prime contractors. So she knows how the system works. She has, in fact, received many accolades and awards from the industry and from defence. She's a star. I'm glad we're chatting to her today because, as you know, there's been a lot going on in the defence industry in Australia and around the world recently. Uh, And in particular, this week, we had the announcement of the AUKUS submarine deal. I'm keen to get her thoughts on that and the challenges that the the defence industry faces. I'm keen to hear about the challenges uh, for Australian businesses in these challenging times. And perhaps I'm going to ask her about her thoughts on the whole of nation concept of supply chain and defence. She's the perfect person to ask these questions. It's not an overstatement to say that she is, in her industry, a true rock star. She's the founder and CEO of a company called Adroita, a multifaceted supplier of advanced technical, digital, and artificial intelligence services to the Australian Defence Force and to the Australian Defence Industry. She is the company secretary and non-executive director of the Australian Industry Defence Network, Aiden. She's a member of the executive committee of the Submarine Institute of Australia. That might be useful. And she still manages to have a full life outside of her work. She had a fascinating and full career with defence before moving into the business. And now, uh, and she was a successful naval officer before swapping hats and becoming an award-winning business consultant and business leader. There's a lot to Adroita and a lot to Sarah. Uh, they, Adroita itself does many things within defence uh, and there's a lot to Sarah herself. So it's an absolute delight to have her with us. She's always incredibly busy. Her business is growing fast. And I feel privileged that we've been able to get it together. Is it a fair introduction, Sarah? Oh, look, I think that you flatter me, James. (laughs) Thank you very much for your kind words. And I'm really excited to be having this conversation, particularly in light of not just this week's announcements, but 
the broader challenges that the defence sector and the Australian industry base face over the next few years? Yeah, I think we're, gonna, we're quickly becoming uh, to understand that the the industry sector in, in Australia and the defence sector are not going to be two different sectors. It's going to be very closely aligned. Hey, it's a busy time for you. Uh, you're being all over media all week. Uh, you just... <laughs> Uh, yesterday you did a, a webinar um, on, on the AUKUS announcement. You've been sort of commenting on it. But I also think you're about to head overseas. Is that right? How are you going to fit all this in? Oh, that's a big question, James. And and um, you made a comment about having a fulsome life outside of work. I'm, I'm not quite feeling that at the moment. And I suspect my children uh, have been feeling a little bit neglected over the last few weeks. But they have an amazing father. So, um that's uh, that's a, the reality, I think, of the life of a business owner, which I'm sure many of your listeners understand as well. So in early April, um, I'm heading over, taking the uh, Adroita brand internationally to attend Sea Airspace, which is one of the biggest naval trade shows, conferences and exhibitions in the US. Mm-hmm. And while I'm over there, I'm going to be launching a white paper about AUKUS micro partnerships. Oh, wow. So really, really playing with the uh, thinking around the mega partnership, AUKUS, and, and what that means for Australia, particularly in the context of we now know what government intends to buy, Virginia-class submarines and an evolved AUKUS submarine and, and build that, that evolved AUKUS sub here in Australia. Um, but I've been thinking about that mega partnership, AUKUS, in the context of smaller businesses as well. So how is it that smaller businesses need to be enabled within that framework to transfer knowledge and information and technology and services and products, uh, particularly given the visa and migration challenges, the challenges of export controls, particularly from the US, um, and and other regulatory um, limitations on on knowledge, data, and technology transfer. Um, But at the end of the day, businesses are on the move and they're thinking about how can we contribute to this agenda and we, we've worked, we've, we've got a case study of, of actually doing some work in a controlled environment with an American company and we've got British partners. So that really got me thinking, how can small business enable AUKUS outcomes, whether pillar one, which we've heard about this week, the submarines, or pillar two, the advanced technology piece, which we're yet to hear uh, what government intends to put on the table. So how do small businesses contribute to that by partnering globally or within that AUKUS framework and what needs to be done to enable them to contribute to those supply chains as well? Yeah, I'm glad you say that. It's a really good question because I I felt with all of the uh, media this week, it's all been about the submarines, about why... um, what it means for defence, uh, and and down the bottom uh, where there was this sort of like industry statement. In fact, uh, one of the TV stations that I was watching had uh, Minister Miles on talking about the announcement, and when it got to Minister Conroy to talk about the industry uh, impact of industry, they they cut off and went to somebody else. And we're not no, this is the bit that we should be talking about what it means for business. 
let's come back to that. You're the CEO and founder of uh, Adroita. What is that? So we, well, we're a, a small but growing and I think small but mighty Australian business. Small we, but mighty, I love it. Small but mighty, like many small businesses are. You know, I think small business owners, entrepreneurs, employees really work out how they can make do with less and, and as a consequence, they, they really deliver bang for buck. But I, um, so I started Adroita, I launched Adroita in May 2016, doing one contract for defence on one project. And I was really on go slow for a couple of years. My husband at that time was still in the Navy. Your husband retired. It's still the same husband. He was just at that time he was in the Navy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes, still the same husband, not in the Navy anymore. So he retired after nearly 36 years of naval service uh, in September last year. Um, but at the time when I started the business, he was actually in command of one of Navy's helicopter squadrons. And I was, you know, doing the, the parent business owner juggle with an absent spouse, um, with, with having the three children here with me in Sydney. And he was, he was not living, um, during the week with us. He was sort of doing that week to week commuting. So, so it was very much go slow. Uh, but by, March, May 2020, I had three people in my team and that's when I really hit the accelerator in terms of working out, one, what I wanted Adroita to contribute to defence and industry in Australia. Two, I, I found an amazing general manager who's just been a huge powerhouse, um, Nev Teague, big shout out to Nev, wouldn't have been able to get to where we are without the great people in the team. And then the third piece was you know, in that those early days doing that direct-to-defence work, I sort of stumbled into some consulting for business. And I say stumbled because I wasn't looking for the work. It 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 was another serendipitous moment. It happened by accident. Um, but through that that initial piece of strategy work that we delivered to a company um, here in Western Sydney called GME, I was able to really understand that there'd be demand from other businesses wanting to know how to access the defence sector and take what they know and do today and, and apply it into what is a complex, slow, high barrier ecosystem, but where they, those businesses might be able to open up new opportunities for new and profitable revenue, whilst also contributing to the broader strategic agenda in Australia of making defence more resilient and self-reliant by growing the industrial base here in Australia. Um, so, so that sort of evolved and we're now around uh, 25 people today uh, serving both defence and Australian industry and we're now partnering and serving global businesses as well that are really committed to helping build capability here in Australia. I spent a bit of time uh, managing international businesses and uh, uh, I've also done some spend my time as a consultant advising on these things. And, and the advice that I always give people is, is if you're going to go overseas and grow the business, you've got to make sure that your current business is well looked after. You've got to lock down what, what, uh, what you do before you start looking further. It sounds like you did that first up, got a good management team in place. Yeah, I think I'm very lucky, um, you know, that, that someone with the depth and breadth of experience that Nev has 
that he said yes to working with me and, and within Adroida. Um, I, I, I look back and I think about transformational moments in the business and, and Nev joining the team is one of them. And, you know, I, I, we wouldn't have been able to get here without his capability. And, and then over time, over the last couple of years, we've been able to really attract some other incredible leaders and some fantastic team members as well, whether they're engineers, commercial folk, project managers or or specialist industry advisors. Um, we've I, I really feel actually blown away by the team we've been able to create. Someone said to me uh, a little while ago uh, that with the the rapid growth that's going to be needed as we sort of you know modernize our supply chains and, and things like defense changes, we're getting, those that have the good staff are going to win. In fact, the core might be those who have win. <laughs> uh, the skill stuff is going to be so difficult. So I think there's probably a good testament as to why you've been able to grow so fast. The other part would be, I would suggest, is your military training. Uh, I don't know if you know this, I was uh, the original chairman of uh, Australian Industry Defence Network, Northern Territory. When it got set up in 97, uh, I was the founding chair and we went through Timor crisis and a whole bunch of of Kakadu exercises and, and the Arche um, tsunami, where they used Darwin as a, as a logistical base. And I got to know a lot of mm-hmm. a, a lot of senior military officers. And I wrote a paper on it for my for one of my masters on uh, business and and defence. And one thing that they teach in defence is decision protocols: how to make decisions, how to understand the difference between strategic, operational, tactical, how to understand the battle space. Do you think that comes into your in the way you manage your business, your 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 all military training. Definitely, I mean, really, my military background underpins in every way everything we're doing today in Adroita, and and I say that um, because I left school uh, having finished uh, year twelve, and joined the Navy straight away. I went to the Defence Academy. I studied electrical engineering. And then I followed a typical weapons engineering early career path in the Navy. Um, But I also did some things that were pretty unusual, actually, for an engineer. So one of the most memorable roles I had in the Navy was working as a flag lieutenant to the Chief of Navy. Uh, So the two chiefs I worked with were Chris Ritchie and Rush Shoulders. Goodness. And and had the yeah had the privilege of working with some um, team members who are very involved in the uh, task force today um, from that office, but that that navy culture and the sense of teamwork and professionalism and that shared knowledge and understanding has absolutely bled into what we do in Adroita. And I think that that starts with the professional basis, you know, that core knowledge uh, from the, that early um, studying. But it also, it definitely is impacted by the planning processes and, and thinking, you know, what's our long-term game? What are we trying to get to? And this is one of the things that we really work with our clients on is, like, what's that, what's that aim point? And how do we create a mo- roadmap to get us as close to that aim point as we can? But then through the the adaptive growth of their defence capability, 
continue to watch that aim point and see if it changes or if it needs to change and then adapt uh, the business and and what they're focusing on to to continue to meet that future requirement or that future um, end state, I would say. And in fact, my first white paper that I wrote, I talked about all businesses that want to access defence to really engineer their future as opposed to, you know, taking a pretty scattergun approach. They need to have the right knowledge. They need a good strategy and then they need a campaign of work to deliver on their planning. <laughs> and and without those three elements in place, uh, they largely won't succeed. We, we see a lot of opportunity actually, it, it, like um, sand in an hourglass, it's just running <laughs> through their fingers. Uh, and, and I really think that that knowledge strategy campaign piece is as true today as when I first launched that white paper a couple of years ago. And my thinking about defence and accessing industry um, has changed, as have the policy settings and, and the unique needs of 2022 versus 2018, but the fundamentals are there as well. Yeah, I, I, in what you're saying, I can see that military thinking coming through of that strategic operational tactical, understand the, the, the broader battle space as well as what's What's right in front of you, and I think that you know, as as we talk about um, uh, industry and defence becoming more closely aligned in Australia, we'll need to understand how this thinking works because we've got some some big issues to address. Let's address one of the big issues. Uh, Orcus yes. got, got announced this week. Um, the CEO of uh, of Australian Industry Group, uh, Indus Rocks, said. Uh, Look, the AUKUS partnership is much more than submarines. Australia is taking a massive technological commitment as part of the agreement. There will be extensive spillover benefits in technology advancement and technology sharing, including around artificial intelligence and quantum technology. And there's a promise of major developments in weapons, communication, sensing and computing technology. These are not necessarily the things that we in business discuss all day. But we have an announcement this week that says in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to see a modern modernization of defense and industry is going to have to come along. That's my words. How would you describe the AUKUS announcement? Well, I think um, the AUKUS announcement that we've heard about this week is one of two pillars. And I think that's a really important point. The AUKUS was originally established as a technology sharing partnership between Australia, the US and the UK. And it's not just about submarines, but that's all we've heard about this week. So pillar one of AUKUS, you know, we, we now know what the plan is, which is Australia buying at least three Virginia-class submarines from the US to be delivered from early 2030s onwards. Uh, we will be building the nuclear-powered uh, submarine of the AUKUS variant, SSN AUKUS. Um, and, and interestingly, the, the design or the commencement of the design pro process for the Evolved Astute, which we're now calling SSN AUKUS, started or was announced either the day before or the day after the original 2021 AUKUS announcement um, in September that year. So so we've just heard about submarines uh, as well as, you know, an extraordinary ecosystem that's going to hang off that program. And by that I'm talking about infrastructure, 
legal and compliance and regulatory work to ensure that Australia is a good nuclear steward before we own our own nuclear-powered submarines. There's the question of disposal now. Um, you know, one of the things that has been talked about a lot is how are we going to dispose of the waste? And that plan isn't clear yet. There's still a lot of work to be done, according to the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister, Richard Miles. Um, there's training and skills development associated with this submarine deal or these submarine deals. And there's going to be just an extraordinary investment in both base and shipbuilding infrastructure in Australia. And in terms of Pillar 2, which we haven't heard anything about, uh, but I suspect with the upcoming de Defence Strategic Review, we might start to, to get a look under the hood as to what Pillar 2 entails. Uh, we're talking about accelerated capabilities, accelerated technologies like quantum computing, hypersonics, uh, cyber, information warfare, other undersea surveillance elements. So if you think about this mega project with the submarines, we have, we're buying submarines and their systems that sit inside them. But there's a bigger network of systems and sensors that are required under the surface of the ocean to, to provide the deterrent effects that Australia is going to need given our geopolitical situation. So there's some really interesting and exciting technology. And whilst there's a huge opportunities for Australian businesses in terms of the submarine deal, I think that the short-term opportunities, the things that agile, smaller businesses might able to be quickly able to respond to, but also rapidly benefit from, are going to sit in that pillar two section of the AUKUS deal. Okay, so watch, watch this space maybe for a lot of uh, a lot of the opportunities. One of the immediate- Can I just say watch this space? Sorry, James, just definitely watch this space and watch this space with the strategic review and the budget that's coming down the pipeline and listen carefully around concepts of resilience, you know, strategic resilience, national resilience, that the the intersection between the um, National Reconstruction Fund and defence, uh, cyber resilience and defence, to my mind, the, these areas are going to get significant investment both in the federal budget outside of defence and the federal budget within defence. My, my next question is going to be, let's talk about defence strategic review, which brings in what you just said. Before we get there, the most immediate part of the, the submarine announcement is the need to provide uh, proven sustainability, uh, sustainable sustainability ability <laughs> um, to the US and the UK before they start sending the submarines here. And that means that we have to immediately start building a submarine base, uh, a bigger submarine base in WA, the one in South Australia and probably on the East Coast. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that because it's been explained to me that these are, these are not just buildings and, and some hard stand. These are highly advanced, highly technical, highly cyber, highly integrated, um, best, in, best in the world type locations. Is that right? Are these things going to be blow our mind as to what's required on a submarine base? Look, I think um, new shipbuilding and new ship or naval vessel sustainment infrastructure 
is going through the same kind of transformation that other industries going through to move into industry 4.0 and 5.0. So if you think about that huge transformation that's maybe facing the manufacturing sector, um, the digitization of business, these new shipyards, the new capabilities uh, in terms of the infrastructure will come with underpinning digitized infrastructure going forward. So I think this is actually one of the really exciting elements to to understand how this industry 4.0 transformation is going to impact the design and development of both the submarine build shipyard in Adelaide, the upgrading and modification and capability enhancing work to enable that increased level of US and UK submarine presence in Western Australia, and then potentially a new East Coast submarine base, irrespective of where that might be located. So I think that that industrial transformation that's happening in all industries is also impacting the defence sector. And so we will see those technologies and those capabilities flowing into these new um, yards. I'm not an expert on submarine infrastructure, although um, we're privileged to work with um, a team in the US uh, with one of our partners, a company called Bechtech, who are experts in submarine infrastructure or nuclear-powered submarine infrastructure. However, what I will say is that the breadth of capabilities that need to be mobilised in Australia to firstly support an increased number of visiting submarines to enable the training and the technology transfer into the Royal Australian Navy and defence and the related Australian industry, and then the ability to own, operate, maintain, and then eventually build these kind of submarines in Australia is extraordinary. And um, to Innes Willox's um, point, this will have ripple effects at the second, third and fourth order across all of Australian um, technology and the industrial landscape. You know, the Prime Minister compared the transformation that's coming as being analogous to the development of the car manufacturing industry in Australia post-World War II. To me, that analogy, whilst it's impactful for Australian businesses that are manufacturers, I think it really undersells the technical and technological transformation that Australia is going to face in order to be able to manage naval nuclear reactor technology in Australia. Um, I think it's much more analogous to creating the Snowy Hydro scheme as a, a once in a lifetime, once in a generation opportunity for this country. Yeah, my view is that it's more like uh, the LNG industry. When I when I was in Darwin uh, and uh, Bunny Aiden, uh, the LNG industry turned up and said, "You know, we're going to build this pipeline and blah blah blah." Um, and the people in the room, including me, went, what? what you, that's a huge thing. But we went from an absolute zero start to the world leader in 20 years. Now, that's roughly the time frame that we're talking mm. about moving from 
uh, having a very small submarine ability to, to being a world leader in the most modern machine ever created. Uh, I think that's, that's the one. It can be done in Australia, and we're going to learn a lot. Um, it's not just submarines, though, because the Defence Strategic Review is coming out, and we're going to talk a lot about platforms, we're going to talk about God of weapons, we're going to talk about explosive ordnance, we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. What's the, what is the Defence Strategic Review, and how does that fit into all of this? I would preface it by saying many people said that the DSR should have come out before the August announcement, I imagine that had more to do with Biden's agenda, that Biden's calendar than anything else. We just had to make the announcement when we made it. But the Defence Strategic Review is with the Prime Minister. What's it all about? So the Defence Strategic Review was an initiative that the Albanese government promised uh, in the lead-up to the federal election last year. So uh, there were a number of election commitments made by the current government relating to defence um, and the strategic review was one of them. So the strategic review really is, is an opportunity for government to get on the balcony and understand in the light of historical white papers, reviews and strategic updates with Australia's circumstances today uh, what may or may not need to change in terms of the structure of the ADF, what kind of capabilities we need to achieve government's objectives uh, in terms of having defence and, and, and having the ADF there to um, deliver on government outcomes. And if there are changes required, what are they? and how much are they going to cost? And this strategic review hasn't gone down a full white paper process, which has typically taken longer. Uh, if we look back to the 2016 and the 2009 white papers, it's, uh, it's really been turned around in, I think it was about six months. I, I can't remember the date that the, the review was announced, but it has been delivered to government. October to February, something like that. Yeah, it wasn't very long at all. It's very, very quick in, in, in defence terms, I would say. And it's been conducted not only because we have a new government, but because Australia is at a critical juncture in the geopolitical situation that it finds itself in the Indo-Pacific. So the reality is that uh, the Australian government is responding to increased big power competition in the Indo-Pacific and is considering how do we provide the right security framework for Australia and the right capability in order to uh, secure Australia's maritime approaches and, and more broadly uh, in the coming years. And in, in 2020, the Morrison government released the full structure plan and a strategic update. And at that point, government declared that Australia had lost its 10-year warning time for conflict or, or potential um, conflict in our region. And the, 
I, I, my sense is, and, and I think that there's been a lot of public discussion about this recently, that that horizon is rapidly narrowing, uh, particularly around some of the claims um, from Xi Jinping about his intentions regarding Taiwan, um, the, the increased mil militarization in the Pacific. So it's a really critical activity that defence has undertaken, but it's likely to require significant changes in the budget and the force structure. So we've heard a lot of rumours and I'm not really prepared to share my thoughts because they're, they're not facts, they're, they're my conjecture really. But I will say that I think we're going to see three outcomes that businesses should be prepared for from this review. The first is some projects or acquisitions will be cut. And that's either because they've been determined as not the right kind of capability that's required or they're of lesser importance and the money for those programs or projects is needed elsewhere. Then we're going to hear, in addition to the mega sub deal, $368 billion um, has been put on the table so far. And I think that's just the start. It's not the end of the financial implications of nuclear powered submarines. But, but we'll, we'll see what the changes are required to the other mega projects, the major investments. Already um, over $100 billion has been committed to guided weapons. There could be changes in, in the guided weapons piece. Um, there might be, excuse me, um, changes in maritime or land or aviation capabilities. Those elements, both the wind up of the projects and then whatever needs to change with the existing projects or, or new mega buys, are going to take a little while to flow through the planning and the funding process. But the third element, which I think business needs to be prepared for today, is that government will hit the accelerator big time on acquiring capability that needs to plug some holes yesterday. So there's been quite a lot of indecision um, within the sector from government because of the strategic review naturally decision makers are waiting to understand what government's direction is. But my sense is there's going to be a big catch up to some of those uh, rapid acquisitions. And I think the businesses that understand how they can fit into defence, where they sit in the supply chain, are, are ready to work commercially with defence and in a security context, those businesses that can move fast do stand to benefit by not only, you know, potentially securing new business lines, but they also benefit by contributing to the broader national security agenda. Like there's, there's both the economic contribution piece and then the contribution to our nat national security opportunity uh, for business. Which is pretty important when you live in an island. Uh, we forget sometimes we live in an island. Uh, we're all in this together. I did laugh a little bit when you said you're not prepared to uh, provide a conjecture because we were both just in Avalon where 4,730 people all had an opinion on the DSR. Um, yeah. And, and everyone was prepared. Look, I, I'm happy to share it off the record, but definitely not on the record. I can tell you that, James. 4,760 people said the same thing. Look, what you have said is that, what you have said is that these big changes that are being announced, when you're, if you're a business person, you need to see a few things. First off, this is about in industry for now coming home to risk, we've been talking about this for five years, it's now time to make sure that you understand the implications of Industry 4 on your business, particularly understand digitalization of your business and 
we've talked about this in the past, our digitalization and, and digitization. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is you know, this is a disruption. You know, the, the, the whole thing is going to be disrupted. And regardless of what comes out of defence strategic review, um, it's going to be next generation warfare. It's going to move Australia into that idea of autonomous uh, vehicles, uh, guided weapons, hypersonics, all sorts of uh, space, cyber. We're, we're moving quickly into a whole new, whole new world and business people should understand this. I, I like what you've been saying. Yeah, absolutely. And James, I think that um, both the digitization, digitization piece is really key. So we've been um, lucky enough to have been awarded a grant by New South Wales government to help oh, us establish yeah. yeah, a defence specific digital engineering capability um, to move, you know, to take us on the industry 4.0 trans transformation equivalent for an engineering professional services business. Um, but in terms of the disruption, my sense is Australian businesses have to get ready for more and more disruption. So in the last couple of years, we've had bushfires, we've had really severe floods. Um, so we're starting to see the consequence of climate change. Like we're really seeing the consequence of it now. We've had the extraordinary black swan event of COVID. And, and we dealt with those in pretty quick succession. I think that we're going to see more and more disruption like that. So businesses need to be prepared to adapt and evolve in those kind of environments. And I'd like to take you back to the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. And she gave an address at the National Press Club last year. And she talked to, about a number of themes. Uh, but one of the key themes was around resilience. I think they were, she was calling it strategic re resilience, this concept of resilience. And she made the point that home affairs needs to be thinking about preparing industry and individuals for multiple disruptive events mm, yep. like COVID and a geopolitical conflict and a um, natural disaster all, and maybe a cyber, cyber attack all occurring at the same time. And if that's what government's thinking about strengthening like our national systems for, my sense is that business needs to be thinking about that from two lenses. One, they need to think about how their business systems and operations can become more resilient and self-reliant in themselves. And then two, I think the opportunity for business is how can you then contribute to those elements in other businesses or throughout other parts of the Australian uh, ecosystem? Uh, look, that is just great wisdom, isn't it? Because disruption is an opportunity. Uh, we can't, if you just sit here in the sand and say, no, I'm happily fed and I'm fed, dumb and happy and life is good, you know, you're going to end up as, as dinner. You have to be ready for it all to, uh, it all to change. I noticed you said that uh, businesses need to be nimble, adaptive, resilience. Would you say they need to be adroit? <laughs> uh, yes, I would. <laughs> Let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk some more. I'm talking with Sarah Pavlard and this is a wonderful conversation.
If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Sarah, one of the interesting things about defence is the time, the, the time continuum. Uh, and as we get into next generation warfare, the, the defence people are talking more and more about how fast it's going to happen. Uh, whereas uh, apparently I'm told that in the Vietnam era, it used to take five minutes to, to uh, acquire a target and then destroy it. Now we're talking milliseconds and in fact, AI uh, and machine learning might, it might happen without us even touching a button. It just happens automatically. Meanwhile, the time taken for defence to buy stuff from industry is still at glacial speed. Um, I can grow a beard faster than, uh, <laughs> than, than we can even just think about what the idea is. A friend of mine was a Navy captain and he said when he was out at sea, you know, when he was the CEO of, of uh, a naval vessel, he would say two degrees starboard and they would say, aye, aye, captain, go two degrees starboard. Then he went to Canberra and said, two degrees starboard and they have meetings about it for two years before they agreed that yes, starboard was the right way to go. Um, what can we do or what's happening to get business more in, get the procurement process more in line with the way that defence is thinking? Well, quite frankly, in my personal view, not enough. So um, I talked earlier when we we're talking about the strategic review that my sense is there's going to be a two-speed approach on what falls out of the four structure plan. So there's going to be the mega projects that require significant reworking of schedules and budgets. And then there are going to be capabilities um, that need to be procured very, very quickly. And within those capabilities, in my mind, also sits um, some of the digital capabilities where you know, our, our traditional systems engineering processes that set requirements and then feed into procurement and um, undertake a, a, a traditional systems engineering V curve, which the systems engineers, you know, will, will be pretty familiar with um, who might be listening today. Always say nice things to engineers in, on this <laughs> podcast. That's good. You should be nice to engineers. I, I never am. I'm all, I always mock them because I have a friend who's an engineer. But hello, Richard. But um, we'll be nice today. <laughs> yeah, I get mocked by my kids a lot, to be honest. Um, so, so we've got these long, slow V-curves. procurement cycles that have been developed in the context of ensuring the the quality and cost control required for 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 mega acquisitions, so now thinking about warships, exquisite platforms like uh, fighter jets, tanks, um, artillery, etc. But the reality is that the development cycle of digital technologies evolves at a much more rapid pace pace than hardware does. So the fundamental structures for procuring these types of capabilities 
needs to, and, and I think has started to undergo transformation. So how we procure is going through as much transformation as the type of technologies we're buying itself. And my sense is that defence will need to adapt for rapid acquisition in the very, very near term. And one of the biggest challenges around getting accelerated capability or accelerating capability into the hands of warfighters faster is going to be the need for the public service and defence officials to transform how they buy. Um, so I think watch this space because I don't think that the agenda from the strategic review will be able to be achieved without transforming how those procurements are conducted. And in my mind, if the strategic review does not come out with guidance on that, that's a significant gap in what has been delivered by the strategic review. I'm sure business people listening will agree with you because the, the frustration with defence is just the amount of time it takes to uh, turn an opportunity into, into revenue. Uh, look, all I was going to say is, you know, with the advisory work that Adroida does, when we talk to businesses, we talk about typically three problems, the complexity, the fact that defence is a closed shop. And when I say closed shop, I'm talking about security compliance, like those regulatory barriers to entry, as well as the personal networks. But then the third piece is the cost in time and money. And that's because of those slow procurement cycles. And that's amplified for business if they're not really well prepared to work with defence or don't understand who's, who's going to be paying for their services or their products. Yeah, I, we look for in the defence supplier network that I run in Sydney, we, we, we try and encourage businesses to maintain their current revenue stream and look at defence because you can't just put all the eggs into the defence basket we generally can't because it just takes too too long. Those businesses with dual use capabilities, so um, suitable for civil or commercial purposes, as well as applicable to defence. I mean, those businesses I typically observe to be very, very healthy and very well placed to working with defence. So I think it's really incumbent on defence to understand where those businesses and where that capability sits in the Australian market. And I think they're very blind to a good proportion of that capability within Australian business. And a really good example of that is the, the first company that we worked with, and a radio antenna and beacon manufacturer called GME in uh, northwest Sydney and that's a 60-year-old family-owned company and they have been um, delivering amazing products designed in Australia, made in Australia uh, to the, the commercial and civil sector for six decades and they've recently started to work in the defence context. But, you know, businesses like GME, if their only source of revenue is defence, you'd go out of business pretty quickly so they've been willing to make the investments to contribute and to grow a new business line, but they've only been able to do it because of the exceptional business they've already built and that's already delivering to Australians. They're a great business too. And, and there's an example of what we're talking about, just a, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful Australian business that has, uh, has got their eyes wide open and ready to move. Oh, I didn't know that you'd working with them, Sarah. That's, that's good news. Yes, we've been working with them. They were our first uh, advisory customer. So um, it's been a, a fantastic journey with GME. Let me run this idea past you. Uh, the, the beauty of Formula One race cars is that they, 
they put innovations into the very best in the world, uh, and then that eventually follow, uh, rolls down into our cars, uh, fuel injection and disc brakes being two examples. Defence has been like that. We, we got GPS from, from the Defence Force. Um, we got uh, drones and unmanned vehicles from the Defence Force. But we're getting to a stage where defence is starting to look at business and saying, can you help us with the innovations? Because we, we don't have that process. You've got so much innovation going on in civilian life. We now need to go and look at that. Do you think that's a fair call? I, I went to a, a meeting last year where, where the American Defence Force was saying, we're looking to, to non-defence solutions. Look, I think that both defence and broader industry can benefit significantly from working together and understanding how to find common opportunities and then where their specialty knowledge can be applicable, you know, on both sides of the fence. So I think to say that, um, you know, that the defence sector isn't generating new technology that's of relevance um, and that it's only coming out of the commercial sector, I think would be understating yeah, the kind of capability and technology that's being developed in the sector, even within Australia. You know, we, we think within Australia that maybe we're not generating the kind of cutting-edge, globally-leading technology on on the defence side of the coin. But I'd really argue that that's not true. I mean, one of the great examples is... I can't remember what it's called now. They've changed the name, the, the cryo clock. It's, a, it's the world's most accurate uh, timekeeping device, which is critical for synchronising um, things like radar systems and um, but, but also has other purposes in a civilian context. Uh, and that was developed, I understand, by DST and is now being commercialised by, by a BAE Systems subsidiary. Mm. Um, but I do think that there's yes. evolution and tech growth that's happening, particularly in the VC-funded space. So if we think about um, the tech startup scene, we haven't had that same kind of rapid technology adaptation. And in some senses, there's a, a, a cultural clash almost between kind of tech startup culture in some contexts and defence. Um, but I think we're going to start to see them converge more and more. And we've already seen the application of dual-use technologies like Starlink, the, the, the satellite system, yeah. um, the contributions that the big software providers have had to fighting cyber warfare related to the war in Ukraine, for example, from Russia. So I think that we're, we're going to start to see a convergence. And just in the conversations that I'm having, James, I'm hearing more and more private equity and venture capital interested in the Australian defence sector. So they're just sort of, they're not the conversations I'm seeking out per se, but I'm just hearing it more and more that private equity is in, interested in investing in defence businesses, venture capitals interested in the same. And and even as recently as this year, we've seen um, Sydney-based company Drone Shield undertake a significant capital raise on the ASX. I think they raised mm. over $100 million. Um, Advanced Navigation got a huge um, 
you know, I, I, can't, I think it was maybe a Series B, Series A or Series B funding round. So, so we're starting to see some of this technology on the move, but in terms of the procurement processes, they're still lagging. There's a lot in this conversation, and thank you so much, Sarah. You mentioned before that one of the issues that you always talk to business about is security clearances. And, and I was thinking about, well, how do businesses start thinking about the AUKUS deal and the, the, the new next generation warfare? And my feeling was you need to understand where you sit in the supply chain. But first off, you need to understand that cybersecurity is absolutely critical, absolutely critical, because that's the starting point these days. No one's going to do business with you unless they can trust you. Would you agree? Where do we start? Security, understanding supply chain, understanding the August deal. How do business get in amongst this? Well, the first thing I would say is on the cybersecurity front. So it is absolutely a ticket to play, but it's not just a ticket to play in defence. I speak to a lot of cybersecurity experts. I'm not one myself, but I speak to them. And every single one of them, without fail, tells me, you need to do more. No matter what you're doing, you're not doing enough, which which kind of worries me as a business, right, you know, just as a business owner, um, despite the measures that we've taken. But I do not think that there are enough Australian businesses thinking about this. And literally every business we talk to, they need to go on a journey to strengthen their cybersecurity. But it's not just a risk. It's an increased risk for defence sector businesses, but it's a risk for every single Australian business. We're going to start to see under this government uh, privacy laws changing. Um, so that could relate to your client data or other data about individuals that you're holding. Um, but we will also see increased demand from government. And I think, um, again, the Home Affairs Minister has been driving this home to make uh, boards more accountable for the cybersecurity um, or the strength of the cybersecurity for their businesses, but also accountable for breaches. Um, and and it, I think this is a real challenge to be grappled with because as a business owner, there's only so much I can do to secure my business in, in the context of the size and the scale and revenue and so on. And many of these risks are not just a business to business risk. They're actually geopolitical risk. These, these uh, breaches are happening because of deliberate state-based actors attacking Australian businesses. And we are going to see, and we've been warned, we are going to see more of this happening to small businesses, large businesses across the Australian economy. So I, I just, I can't reiterate enough that cybersecurity, if it's not at the very top of your priority list as a business owner, it needs to be, and it needed to be yesterday. Um, but more broadly in terms of accessing, James, no one can do it alone. So, you know, one of my key key tips for businesses is to find partners, and it could be a consulting firm like us to kind of help you along the journey. It could be finding a business that really values the capability or the or the product or the services you bring to the table. And so they're really willing to work with you to help unlock your capability for defence. But, you know, one of my um, top tips for businesses is really to find the partners who can help you along that journey. And as the general manager of Defence Supplier Network, I would agree with you. Um, look, Ines, we mentioned um, Ines before, the CEO of AI Group, and when he gets asked what keeps him awake at night, 
Uh, he says cybersecurity. Uh, we have people. He says we have people all around Australia reaching out to the world, uh, and and uh, it's difficult to keep us, you know, uh, secure. But we have to do it. It's what he has to to focus on. Number one in his role as CEO. Definitely. And James, you know, I'm a small business owner, so I understand cash and cash challenges. You know, cash flow, cash is king and queen and everything else. But it's not all of the picture now. So I think that the two neuroses that, that business owners need to have and, and business leaders need to have is the cash piece and the cyber piece, the two C's, cash and cyber. If you're thinking about cash, you've got to be thinking about cyber. If you're thinking about cyber, you need to be thinking about cash because you you're going to need to fund your cybersecurity somehow. Absolutely. In the 1990s, we, we went through a, a major focus on workplace health and safety. It's the same thing uh, writ large saying you now need to focus as well and perhaps more so on cybersecurity, not just workplace security and safety. It's been a wonderful conversation, Sarah. Thank you for your time. Uh, we've a lot of gems in there. I, I couldn't even possibly begin to <laughs> summarise. Just wonderful to have you on and to hear all that thinking. The main thing I got out of it was the positivity um, that we can access this office deal and, and we can, as business people, get some things out of it. But be aware of digitalisation, disruption and decarbonisation and the fact that it's all just going to accelerate. Thanks for your time. My pleasure, James. Thank you for letting me share a little bit about Adroiter and what we do um, with you and your listeners. We often talk about procurement. I, I, I shouldn't let you go without saying hello to Mark, your, your husband, who you mentioned a couple of times. My, my friend um, Chris uh, was a colonel in the Army and uh, he was, did a lot of procurement. He married a girl from the Army, Kerry, and he told people that after assessing the market, he took the in-house option. <laughs> well, my husband likes to joke that I'm his war bride. We uh, deployed <laughs> to the Middle East together in 2003 and actually it wasn't that long afterwards that we were married. So. The, uh, perfect place, the perfect place to find love. All right. Uh, thanks very much. All the best uh, in your trip overseas and uh, let's keep talking as we move forward into this very exciting new era in Australia. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. James, thank you. And that's it for another episode of Supplier Circles. We'll be back in a fortnight with some more insights into supply chains. I'm James Scotland. Talk to you then.